Alright. <laughs> Alright, well, I think we're just going to go ahead and get started and let people trickle in. Um, so, um, why don't we just start with prayer. Dear Lord, um, thank you for this morning. Be with each other, and especially above all other Sundays. Your resurrection and the events which secured our salvation, Lord. So, we are immensely grateful for that. Um, Lord, help us to see everything in the light of this day and in the light of those. Um, so, we have been talking about um, looking beyond what we can see today, setting up the just a a framework for heaven by building sort of an awareness of the spiritual realm and the things that are out there that we don't see, we don't usually talk about or live our daily lives thinking about, um, many of us. And so, before we can talk about heaven, it would be nice if we were all on the same page about the fact that there is a spiritual realm and there are spiritual beings that plays a lot into heaven. And so, we've been talking about um, other beings. Well, first we talked about another realm, um, Hades, Paradise, and the Abyss. Now we're talking about the beings that live in those other realms, and this morning we're going to continue our discussion about holy angels. Um, and so, just briefly, we talked about them being spirit beings as opposed to physical beings, um, and that they're created beings, um, that they're created simultaneously and are innumerable. And where we ended up is that they're a higher order than man today. Um, we talked about how Christ was made to be lower than the angels when he was a man. Um, that they don't die, they have greater wisdom than man, but it's limited. So, the, the second part of this is that they're, they're a higher order of man today. Um, but, yeah, um, along with the higher order of man today, they have greater power than man, but limited. We talked about them having greater knowledge. Um, they have greater power. Um, but what we're going to look at is that redeemed men will become a higher order than the angels one day. So, we look at Hebrews 2, 5 through 8, which says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And so, this, this world to come from this passage is not mainly created for the angels. It's created for us, for redeemed men. Um, and then, if we go to 1 Corinthians, I think this passage will shed some light on the whole idea as well. Um, it's 1 Corinthians 6. 3, um, and Paul is talking about believers having lawsuits against one another. Um, and it's kind of an offhand comment in this um, passage about why believers shouldn't have lawsuits against one another, but he says, 
Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So, Paul's argument is that if we're going to judge angels, we should be able to deal with our problems in this life um, in a civil way. But the, the fact that it seems he's kind of taking for granted is that we'll judge angels, which is kind of a startling idea. And this is part of subject the subjugation of the the Hebrews 2 passage that we were looking at. So man, as redeemed, is going to be higher than the angels. And so when we looked at um, all the angels, all their power, um, everything that they have, we, we will be greater than them in our redeemed bodies because we'll be like God. And that's really the big issue as to why we will be higher than them is because they're not created in the image of God. Christ, as we, um, especially on Easter, think about this, Christ didn't die to redeem angels. There, there was no redemption offered to them. This image of God in humanity is worth God dying to save. And that is an amazing fact about how God's created us and how much he loves and cares for us, that even though he's surrounded with these beautiful beings who serve him constantly and we're just on earth picking our nose and twiddling our thumbs, he is us worthy enough to save and to redeem and to make higher than these angels. So, I mean, that's just part of our promise of heaven is all as all of these things point towards where we're going when we talk about, when we begin to talk about what heaven will actually be like, um, this is just a little snippet that will be higher than the angels. Um, so, then moving on, we're going to talk about kind of the, the hierarchy of angels. Um, and so, we'll look first at the highest ranking. Um, this is Michael. And he is the archangel. Um, Jude 9. I want to turn there. Can I have somebody read verse 9? Thank you. Um, just kind of, um, for what it's worth, this is one of the passages that Catholics, when they're talking about the Apocrypha books, use to justify them, because um, us as Protestants will say, the, the Apocryphal books are never quoted anywhere in the Testament as authoritative books. And this is actually one of the places where a story from one of the Apocryphal books is used. Um, so, for what it's worth, that doesn't mean that everything in the book it's, is true, but that means that Jude um, takes this story as true and as authoritative. And so, um, you see here with, with Michael... Um, after, after Moses died, the story is that Satan tries to steal his body, and Michael is sent to protect the body of Moses and to bury it. So, Michael um, <laughs> is really, I mean, Michael's the angel that's sent because he's the highest angel. He's the only one that has the power and the ability to contend with Satan, who was the highest angel. So, or he was of an order of the highest angels. Um, and it's interesting here, um, 
too, that Michael, even being the most powerful angel, doesn't dare say anything against Satan um, of his own authority. So, like, I guess it was, I think it was Medina's youth group a while ago, um, had these shirts that said, like, Satan is a loser, I think is what it said. And so people who didn't like the shirts went to this passage to say not even Michael would say something like that to Satan. What he does say is the Lord rebuke you. And so even Michael, who has the most authority of all the angels in heaven, understands that that authority isn't his. It's not his authority. It's in Christ that he has power. That's period. He's not, I rebuke you because I'm the biggest angel. He says, the Lord rebuke you, and he won't say anything against Satan himself. And so when we look at Satan, we'll see that he really is a terrifying being and a terrifyingly horrible and powerful being. Um, So much so that Michael, who's the archangel, won't even say anything against him. Um, He's described as the great prince um, in Daniel. So... Daniel writes, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And then, sh- and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So Michael, who's the great prince, is the one who um, sort of ushers in this, the end times, which we talked about earlier. Um, so he, he is the great prince. No other angel is described as the great prince. So then we see he's the protector of Israel specifically, which is God's people. Um, so if you want to go to Daniel ten twenty one, that says, But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And so talking to Israel, Michael is their prince. Um, then if somebody can read Revelation 12. Before you, yeah. verse 20 begins. Yeah. And that is actually a really interesting study to look at the uh, ancient cultures of the people groups that are alive around Israel, like Babylon and Persia and Greece and Sumerians and all the Canaanites. They all have their own local god. So they all have, like, their own, each city has their own, like, protector god. And so when um, the Lord comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to be your god, it's a very significant thing because he's taking up control and protection over Abraham's city. And so here um, we're kind of given some light into what's actually happening with all those cities is, like, Babylon's, there, there is a god over Babylon. There is a god over Persia. They're really demons that are in control of government and the thing happened and influencing. And this is another testament to God's faithfulness to his people is put Michael over them to guard them and protect them as his representative because protecting them. So this is Michael over Israel. And then in Revelation 12, 7 through 9, if someone could read that. So, in this passage, we learn that Michael, as the protector of Israel and of God's people, really does have the power to contend with Satan. He's got an entire army. Um, 
And this is speaking specifically of Satan's rebellion in heaven. And when he rebels, it's not, I mean, it doesn't appear that God's the one that fights against them. They don't even get as far as to God, just Michael. Um, Michael is the one who fights against them. Actually, John Milton's Paradise Lost, I think I've referenced that in here before. It's a, a poem from several hundred years ago that John Milton wrote about the fall of man and the fall of Satan and stuff. Um, he does a really cool job of speaking from Satan's point of view about the horror of facing um, Michael and just the fact that they had all these illusions that they were going to win and just realizing the fact that they couldn't even hurt the they couldn't touch Michael. It was like they were little kids and Michael was like a full warrior. So he does a really cool job of bringing that out. And we, we see that here. Um, none of the angels obviously died who with God, and the end result is that Satan and his angels were chased out of heaven, presumably by Michael, who the archangel. And so, right, some of that, that we were, like in the case of Michael fighting Satan for the body of Moses, it's not like he killed him and then got the body. It's more like he overpowered them and then got the body. And so when we looked a little earlier in Daniel, um, angel, I think it's Gabriel, is coming to Daniel to message. And he's opposed by this prince of Persia. And he actually needs another angel to come and help him, to overpower him so that he can go. And so it isn't that they're killing each other. It's more just a power struggle a lot of times. And then we, we also have the place, which is the abyss, which is like a demon prison. So it's, it's understandable that some are put there. Um, captured and overpowered. Yeah, as like what we've been seeing when we look through all of this stuff is that the spiritual realm is very much dependent on authority and who has power and authority to but so if if demons don't have authority to act in a certain realm, they can't. So right. Yeah. They they do materialize to talk to to a lot of times. And then the chains there, if they're spiritual beings, could all, they're just bound by the power. But yeah, they do. They definitely do materialize. And it's it's kind of strange because their, their realm, it seems like, while it isn't physical, it either has a lot of aspects of physical existence or the writers of the Bible are talking about it that way so that we can, because it's so far beyond anything that we really could. So it may not be that they're like we think of someone in prison with chains, but they are, that's the way that we understand being bound. And so that could be what's going on. A lot of it is almost metaphorical language so that we can underwrite. So Michael, also in the Jude 9 passage again, he's the one that fights for the body of Moses um, is kind of who, at that point, is the figurehead of Israel. We just see that he's the one who is in control of protecting this people, primarily. So, 
chief princes are the highest ranking angels of God. So back in Daniel 10, where Michael's called the chief prince, um, verse 13, this is, this is the story um, when Gabriel comes to Daniel to deliver the message and he's telling him why he was late. Um, and this is probably a pretty good excuse for being late. I don't know if it'll get you out of work or anything, but um, he says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia, with, Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. So Michael is the one sent as a chief prince to help this angel because he's the highest ranking angel. It's not that God sends an entire army of angels. All that needs to go is Michael, one of the chief princes, because he has the power to um, dispel kings of Persia. So they're ruling angels um, as well as kind of warrior angels. So um, in Ephesians 3, um, someone could read Ephesians Right, and so these these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are these chief princes, and Michael as the kind of represented class of angel. Um, they are the rulers. So um, then we turn to, and and that's, I mean, as far as the the framework for understanding this ancient mentality, um, that's exactly what like ancient Babylonia thought of their gods as well, that they were their rulers and authorities in heaven. And so what you can see by studying their history is how the the satanic and demonic realm is trying to build up their own kingdom. They do it in a way, they're not doing anything new. Um, they're, they're not... They're not the creative side of things. All they can do is what's already been done. And so the way they try to set up their kingdom is the same way God sets up his kingdom. Um, putting demons over, um, over cities and over countries and this kind of ruling class and these, these ruling authorities over, over cities like Persia and Greece and who are all subject to Satan. And it's almost like he's trying to set up his different heaven, his different spiritual realm, which is what he's trying to do, um, at least on earth. So, I mean, that's that's a way to think about Michael, is he's like the, the second in command, Israel, God's holy people, or protecting God's people. So, um, moving on to a, a second class of angel, um, these are more prominent angels, um, or these are prominent angels. Um, Michael, who is like God, is one we've already looked at, who is an archangel. Um, Gabriel, he is he's referred to as the man of God, or God is strong. Um, these are his names, and really what he, what the name signifies about him is, I mean, it's that God is strong. And this is the Gabriel as the angel who brings messages to everyone is declaring this message over and over again, that God is the one that's strong. It's not, here, I'm bringing you this message because I orchestrated all this stuff. He is, 
he's literally just God's messenger. So he's a he's a special messenger. Um, so in Daniel eight fifteen through sixteen, somebody mind reading that as well. So thank you. What's going on in this passage is that Daniel's just seen this vision, um, and he sees presumably God on the banks of this river. Um, tell Gabriel to give Daniel the message of the dream. Um, so, he, he is the, the messenger. Um, and the dream, does, the dream relates to um, the kingdoms of the world. Um, so Gabriel is sent to give Daniel this message about the future of mankind and what's going to happen with all these kingdoms that seem um, completely powerful and destructive. And he, Gabriel's the one who delivers the message to Daniel of how God will ultimately conquer all these kingdoms of the world. And so, as God's messenger, Gabriel's responsible for delivering the message of the kingdoms of the world and what's going to happen in the future. Um, he, he, in Daniel 9, 21 through 27, says, While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me, saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then, for sixty-two weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and to offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So this is one of the passages that we looked at when we were talking about the end times. And Gabriel is the angel who communicates God's ultimate plan for his people and for the end of the world. So he's not, he's not only bearing the message about what's going to happen to the kingdoms of the world and their, their destruction and their judgment, he's also bringing the, the, the message about what's going to happen to Israel and to God's people. So then in Luke, um, we see one... Someone read 11 through 20. Mm -hmm. And he will... <laughs> Thank you. So this, I mean, this must have been in a super intense experience for Zechariah to be visited first by this angel, and it seems like he doesn't really know what's going on. <laughs> and then 
he finally says, how, how will I know um, this is true? Um, who are you? And the response, especially to a priest who knows exactly what's going on in the Old Testament and probably has the entire thing memorized, knows all about Gabriel. Um, to hear the words, I am Gabriel, must have been a terrifying and awing moment, like, oh, I shouldn't have asked that question. <laughs> but what we see here is that Gabriel, continuing his role as the messenger in the New Testament, um, bears the news of John the Baptist. Um, and then in the in the story that's very familiar to us, um, Luke 1, 26 through 27, says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So we see here that Gabriel is the one who, he not only communicates about the kingdoms of the world and the world's future and the people of God's future, um, he, he doesn't just get to communicate the message about John the Baptist, the greatest man alive up to that point. He gets to bear the message of Jesus Christ um, to be, be born on earth. And so his role as one of the prominent angels is a very, very high role. Like Michael defends the people of God, Gabriel informs them. And he, I mean, he really gets to bear the greatest message that's ever been given to humanity. Their redemption is coming, and that God is becoming one of them. I mean, thing to be Mary and to sit in front of this angel who out from you know, studying the Bible since you've been a little kid, learning about it, Mary would have. And then to have this angel sit in front of you and tell you the waiting to hear for your entire life. It's an amazing thing. Um, and Gabriel gets to be the angel that is this messenger of God. Um, so then, after these prominent angels, who's the protector of the people of God and the messenger to them, um, we have divine attendants and guardians of the throne. Um, so the first of these are the cherubim, um, and who they are, they're of the highest order or class of these angels that guard the throne. Um, they are created with indescribable power, wisdom, and beauty. And this is, this is the place that Satan held. He was, as the angel Lucifer, he was one of these cherubim. And so, if we look in Ezekiel 28, the 14th verse says, You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. So this is talking about Satan's incredibly high place that he held. Um, he is given the position of highest authority. And so... When, when we talk about it in, in his case, also these other cherubim, who are these guardian angels around the throne of God, um, they, are, they, they have power and wisdom and beauty just like he did. So it was, it was funny, 
Michael, when we talked to the youth about this, used the illustration like, <laughs> these, these angels are like God's entourage. Like, you know how you see rappers or NBA stars just on TV and they're always surrounded by all these huge, strong people and all their friends and stuff. These are like God's entourage. These are the angels that are closest to him. They guard the throne. They're the protectors. So Satan was one of these. Um, Then Ezekiel is in a unique position because he actually gets to see them. Um, He's one of the few people who, in Scripture, whoever sees these angels. Um, So in chapter 1 of Ezekiel, 5 through 10, um, can somebody read that for me? Thank you. Um, so the the first thing that Ange- that Ezekiel describes them as is that they had a human form. They kind of look like people, like standing like we do, um, except that they have four faces: um, a man or an eye or a lion, an ox, and an eagle, which he describes down at the bottom. Um, they have four wings. Um, feet like a calf's feet, um, gleaming with burnished bronze. I actually looked this word up preparing for this. Um, And burnished means like polished, really shiny, and really bright. So their feet are sparkling like it would be like the kind of bronze that would be used somewhere. It's really polished and it's bright. And they have four hands underneath their wings. So this is their their appearance, and they they really are, I mean, if you kind of just let your imagination go with it, amazing-looking beings. And they're the cherubim or angels with their wings touching. And I, I don't think they're described with the, the four faces, um, but they are in human form. That's This is really where we get our of angels, like this human form with the wings, and so when we think of angels as like people with wings, that's where this comes from. We kind of leave out the four faces part because that's kind of with that. Um, but so they they have these four faces like this, and on on the side of their heads as well. Um, so this is how Ezekiel describes them, um, and. As for what they do, um, they proclaim God's holiness and sovereignty. Um, they protect or guard his presence. That's what we've seen. That's why they're where they are, is they're like God's entourage. They're like his bodyguards. Um, not that he necessarily needs bodyguards, but this is the place that they hold. They're the ones that are closest to God. Um, so they, they really... Their mission is to guard the holiest place, um, period. So this is why in the Old Testament, on the Ark of the Covenant, where God's glory is going to dwell, this is why there are cherubim there with their wings outstretched and God's presence dwells in between them, is it's really the temple is a picture of what's happening in heaven. So in the most holy place, even in the temple, you have God 
God's presence surrounded by these cherubim. Right. Thanks. That, that distinction is helpful. So, part of what they do um, in Revelation, go to Revelation 8, 8-2, um, then it says, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And down in, down in 6, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. So just keep that in mind as we go to 16. So in 16.1 it says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So as we see through Revelation, God judging humanity, or God getting ready to judge humanity, it's these angels who are closest to him that do that. They're, they're the ones with the trumpets and with the bowls pouring out God's judgment. So they, they prepare humanity for God's, for his judgment in Revelation. They, they bring, they help to move forward on the end of the world. So when we see them in scripture um, as the divine attendants and guardians of the throne, um, is that they're in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3, verse 24, it says, this is after God has thrown Adam and Eve out of Eden. It says, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim a flaming sword, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. Um, just for whatever it's worth, again, in Hebrew, when you want to make a word plural, they don't add S at the end, they add Im. And so when you see cherubim, it's the plural of cherub. So God places, it's not just one angel, it's not the cherubim as one thing, it's the cherubim as many angels. And so they're guarding the Garden of Eden. They cover the mercy seat in the, the temple, as we've already talked about um, in Exodus, when God's telling them to build the ark. Um, and in Ezekiel's vision, he also sees them. Um, so... Why don't we just go ahead and finish up this one section? It's not very long. Um, this the second order of beings that sort of attend around the throne of God are called seraphim or burning ones. Um, so in Isaiah six two it says, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. So these angels that Isaiah sees are different than the cherubim that Ezekiel sees and that are at the Garden of Eden. Um, these have six wings. Um, so what they look like, they have six wings. That's really their distinguishing um, characteristic. And so these are the angels regarding what they do in heaven. They say holy, 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 and proclaim God's holiness. If the, the cherubim are there to constantly guard and protect God's throne, the seraphim are there to constantly worship God and proclaim his name and declare him holy. So, as we talk about our role in heaven, is really one day going to be to join these angels in praising God with our lives and with our words.
um, as, as they sing holy, 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 and even as we go into church this morning, our praise is joining their praise as they proclaim to God. We become a part of that, even on earth, as his people proclaiming his holiness. So keep that in mind as we talk about Easter this morning, um, and as we think about God's glory, we're really joining in with the angelic worship, um, with these seraphim that are kind of obscure in scripture and in Isaiah that we don't often think about, but who are constantly doing what we only get a glimpse of in church every morning. And what we're promised we will understand in full um, in heaven. So, if I could have somebody close us in prayer, we can...